From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week, coming to you via Zoom. Since March, we've done it this way. Got the whole crew in here. Shane Jensen's there, Adi Weiner, Eric Brattle. This is Cade Massey. You guys can join the conversation if you want. Give us a shout on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter. Or send us an email. Email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Love to hear questions, claims, observations, whatever you got. Regular show today in that we're going to cover COVID-19 in the first quarter, roll into some open lines, open discussion on sports in second and third quarters. And then we have a discussion with Jay Billis in the last quarter talking NCAA basketball, amateurism, COVID-19, interesting conversation coming up with Jay Billis. Guys, COVID-19, big, big day, big, big day yesterday. The immunization went out in the United States for the first time. What, other than that, has caught your eye in the world of coronavirus? Well, I thought I would jump in with a, a, uh, a meme that's spreading, which is that just because you have gotten the vaccine doesn't mean you can't spread it. While that, I believe, is technically true, it is also something that I believe is somewhat unlikely. So we'll, that'll be determined as we get more data, we'll learn more. But uh, it's clear that there's a connection between viral load and, and likelihood of transmission. Transmission. Many people who are, have transmitted are asymptomatic, um, but they tend to uh, transmit it at a much lower, um, at a lower rate. And there are some people who actually have virus all over them um, and yet nevertheless don't show symptoms. Um, the, the vaccine should diminish your ability to spread it substantially. Yeah, and we, we should. I mean, I, I agree that we will have more solid data on this as we kind of roll forward and actually get vaccinated people as part of as part of this analysis. But we, we, we kind of know the two parts of that connection, right? We do already have science. They already must know kind of how the vaccine, at least among people they've given to, affects their viral no- load. Yeah. And we also, there already must be kind of science on how much the viral load does affect transmit, like kind of your ability to spread, right? There is. That was one of the things, I mean, we can reflect on what we didn't know at the start of this thing. I mean, I those are definitely two things we did not know back yeah. in March or April. I didn't know the concept of viral load. I thought you yeah. either had something or you didn't. I didn't know that, you know, the degree of exposure affected the likelihood that you'd get it. Um, so you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, you know, undermine these false memes and God, I feel like we got to have a bunch of them over the next few months. Well, um, it's, it's really a, a, um, something that happens a lot and particularly when you're, you're facing an unknown. Like for example, um, and this is a question, do we vaccinate the already infected, the, the recovered? That's a huge question. That's and a huge I think question. that is in, I think is an incredible waste of resources, um, particularly anyone who's been sick relative in the last six months and why do we know that? Why do they want to do this? Because of uncertainty. So Fauci yeah. said Trump should get an re, Trump should get the, the the inoculation. I think that's absolute waste. I mean, yeah. I don't mean, and I'm not saying that as a political comment. I mean, you might want to make it that, but I'm not. And the reason for that is that there are maybe 25 people that have been documented reinfection. That is a minuscule rate. The the idea that you can be reinfected, which is true, 
doesn't mean it's even plausibly likely that you will be reinfected. And it just seems like a waste of resources that are scarce. Mm-hmm. What, what if like, so I, and I think this is particularly impactful question when we start, because in most countries, the first wave of immunizations is going to be among our kind of our healthcare workers and, 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 and first responders and stuff like that. So those are all, that's also a population where a lot of people have had COVID, right? Because of their exposure through all this. And so even within that subpopulation, you would kind of argue that it's not worth inoculating somebody who had COVID, even though they do have that increased kind of exposure for, you know, kind of a high probability of increased future exposure. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just two quick thoughts. Um, first of all, I agree with uh, both of those sentiments. Just two quick thoughts. One is, do we know who has immunity for a longer period of time? Someone who naturally got COVID or someone that now has an mRNA injection? Do we know who it lasts longer? Because someone (laughs) might have had COVID seven or eight months ago and their degree to not get a large viral load is gone by now. You're you're asking whether we know if A is bigger than B when we don't know how big A or B is. And also, you know, that that this virus is not, uh, is, is technically a moving target, right? So, you know, some, some, you know, the, the mRNA, like somebody immunized for using an mRNA vaccine developed like, you know, within the last like month or two, that might be more kind of specifically targeting the virus as it currently exists than somebody who is, who say, for example, got it and developed immunity to it, like, you know, back in February or March. Mm-hmm. Yep. Look, let me throw out another one. And, and this reminds me of the, probably the first couple of weeks I was a graduate student. I remember hearing this story from a guy that's stat, not deceased, a statistician at Harvard for a long time, Fred Mosteller. And there's an old story about Mosteller working with the army. And you'll see the analogy in just a second. Um, so he was working on where should they reinforce airplanes? And he was doing a statistical analysis. And it turns out that um, they'd come back with bullet holes, the planes would come back. And his comment was, well, that's where not to put the reinforcement, because obviously the plane could still fly with bullets there. So when Shane said there are people that are already exposed, and Adi's been saying this for months now, maybe there are people that are just naturally immune. So suppose I told you that there was a person who works in a hospital who's had plenty of exposure, but has not gotten COVID. Maybe I shouldn't give it to that person because that person's the bullet hole. That person's well, already been shot with a bunch of bullet holes and they're still standing and they don't have COVID. No, I'm just saying no. our goal is to optimally use the finite resources we have. What's wrong with that as a theory? Well, okay, so it's a, lo- it's a lovely analogy. One, my immediate question is how well established is this idea that some people have natural immunity or some immunity from some previous source? How well established and how much, how much are we certain about that? And, and we'd have to be because the other population besides healthcare workers that I think is coming up kind of in these first waves is our, is our older, our older population. So you could actually argue we should not prioritize because the UK, for example, I just heard from a colleague over there, the UK is actually prioritizing old people over healthcare workers like seniors are actually higher up in their kind of rankings as far as who gets immunized compared to their healthcare workers. But again, by your argument, you could argue, well, the old people you know, the old it people survived. that could get the, the old people that could get Corona are already gone. Yeah. So there's a bunch and of, so the you, ones you that remain, my, you have followed my logic impeccably. Yeah. So there, there, I have actually some data on that last point, which you're not surprised. But if you look at the 85 and up uh, population, the death rates were incredible in the Northeast in, in March and April. 
they like they were they went to lower than average in the months afterwards mm. in the northeast so in what, the northeast what, just because remind us what those uh, just remind us what those death rates started at and what they went down to Oh, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm just, I just have a, a neutral one, one. I don't have the numbers, the, the rate that, you know, uh, when you're 85 and over the, the natural death rate is about 13% a year. Um, that, if that's what you're thinking was the baseline, but I scale it to the previous five years average in any okay. given week. Um, okay. And so those numbers went up in like New York and in New Jersey by a factor of five, which is insane. You're, so you're five times more in likely week, in, in a given week. Um, went up by a factor of five, and actually, oh, and so, true. And, yes. and so five times thirteen is that a reasonable way to think? No, about no, it's that? five times one week's worth. So thirteen divided by fifty times five. Oh, what thirteen, 13 is the annual rate? Third annual. Okay, okay, yeah. got it. Okay, so thirteen divided by fifty times five is, and that's a huge number. Uh, and rocket. And by the way, interestingly enough, that that rate was more or less constant across all the age groups. There's obviously a much lower base, but. And the just increase, the, the increase, increase on, a, on, a, on a factor basis. Um, right now, even though people might to analogize this to the, to the spring, we're seeing increases of about 20 to 40% among the base rate, which is a lot, of course, but nothing like the 400% increases that we were seeing um, back in April where things were just mad. And that's, by the way, New York City. So everywhere else, it it's, was much lower. So basically to this comment that you know, we've been discussing, if, you had, if your goal was to purely, we talked about this last week a little bit, if your objective function was to purely minimize the number of deaths over the next, let's say, year due to COVID, it's not obvious that you would distribute the vaccine in the way that's currently being planned. And I'm just saying, you could develop a bunch of like, you know, I'll just call them straw man hypotheses like we've been batting around. You could understand the data and you could, you basically could come up with a different vaccination schedule. No, and and I think that's part of the real complexity, sort of social complexity problem is that if you gave like, you know, operations people an objective function of like, this is what we actually want to minimize, it would be probably a pretty complex calculation, but it would be a doable calculation to kind of come up with an optimal allocation of the vaccine. But we haven't, as a society, clearly we don't have agreement on what the objective function is. How do you wait sort of, you know, if an old person gets it, they're that much more likely to die versus a healthcare worker who's less likely to die, get they get it, but is much more likely to be exposed Exposed. and expose others. It's, it's, It's very messy. So um, one of the things let's acknowledge that that, there, that you might give you, you assumed away all the difficult not all but a big part of the difficulty of the problem when you said give an operations guy an objective function mm-hmm. because the objective function is no no challenge. no yeah I guess I'm arguing that defining that objective objective yeah. function as a society is incredibly complex political etc. So uh, I, I, let's, I, let's, I, let's be clear that this is what the CDC hearings were about and it was literally this day last <laughs> week that they had those hearings and then they announced their but that, that is fundamentally a political process. But of course, I mean, it, it's a public policy decision. It is a political process. What's most interesting to me is that they make these guidelines, but then ultimately it's decentralized to the states. And so every state is going to have this conversation again. So Adi, you've been studying effect sizes, the size of these, the magnitude of these effects. Suppose I said to you the following, from the time someone gets the vaccine, one shot in theory for the one that's currently out doesn't give you full immunization. It gives you some. Is there any chance, given the effect sizes, that the death rate could go up 
among people that get the vaccine. Let me say why. Let me just come up with a hypothesis and you just tell me it's totally wrong because of the effect sizes. I've gotten the vaccine. I think I'm immune. I started going out like I was doing before. I get exposed. I don't have full immunization. I get COVID. And now, in other words, I've let my guard down and now I'm actually more likely to get it and I could get a severe case of it. Is that totally wrong just because of the effect no. size of one dose versus two? I think it's not totally wrong, but it's the but only insofar as if that happens among the most vulnerable population. So those who are you know eighty five and up in nursing facilities, if they all of a sudden say, "Forget it," they might actually end up getting more exposed. On the other hand, um, they also have the shortest amount of time left in their lives. Shouldn't they live it as much as they possibly can? Um, and it and 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 they have been so. The uh, the effects on the seniors, particularly in nursing homes, has been so debilitating and critical. Um, we don't we don't really comprehend it unless you know someone who's been in that situation. Um, I'm looking forward to that population getting the opportunity to to go out of their rooms, which for for the most part they've been in that situation. Adi, just to be clear, is it purely just a multiplicative effect? Like if I told you their exposure rate doubled, but their COVID rate went down twenty percent, you would say bad like is it purely just a multiplicative thing yeah i think it is pretty much multiplicative there's just no way that's how probabilities work so i don't think getting around that but here's the interesting thing the pfizer vaccine seems to be as effective at above 65 years of age as it is for below 65 i don't know if they have enough data to really piece those things out but the moderna vaccine um, seems to be less effective at the seniors. Now, that could just be true for both of them, and these are underpowered tests. You don't have that much data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We know about, we know about limitations of this size. Um, doing something at an emergency level does leave you with less opportunity to measure differences between subpopulations. But the difference is actually su- fairly substantial. It's 85% versus 95%. And the vaccines that seem to be coming online, AstraZeneca, et cetera, there's a couple others, those seem to be substantially less effective at seniors, which is something they thought was going to be true all along. And it was a remarkable, one of the many, many miracles that have occurred so far with regard to these two uh, RNA viruses, that they do seem to be as effective as seniors as they, they appear to be. And that's got to go into the calculation. Here you have a vaccine that you know will work below 65, but it isn't as effective uh, at over 65. How does that get into the optimization algorithm? Logistically, or a clarifying question, at what point do you think an individual is going to have a choice over what what shot he takes or she takes? Possibly yeah. never. I mean, possibly you, never. Right. Well, so, I, you're, you know, yeah. And, and but you're saying they ought. I mean, unless we've got some super wise and benevolent person making these decisions, it'd be nice if they did have some discretion. If, if these if these are different in this way, this meaningful way. Adi's asked, answered, asked another, has added another variable to not only who should get it, but for example, um, because of the eventual herd immunity, if you had a choice, you should use the more effective vaccine first and the less effective one later, right? Because mm-hmm. I may not need 94, 95% effective if I'm in wave three, because all those other people have mm-hmm. gotten it, according to Adi's yep. theory, they all mm-hmm. have low viral loads. Therefore, mm-hmm. 70% effective to me may be the equivalent of 90-something perspective. I'd rather have 70% at phase three could be worth 90% at phase one. Mm, it's a good observation. You know, the way I would have done a sort of a mixed strategy, I would have imagined every single 
health worker, any aide, any, any employee of a nursing facility needs to be vaccinated immediately. Um, and I would potentially be less, um, particularly if there's a, scare, a scarcity, uh, giving it to um, every, every resident of a nursing facility, considering, for example, that meantime in a nursing facility, I know this data because I investigated the insurance is six months. That's how, that's the, the minute. It's incredibly. Well, um, what is six, what is six months? Uh, the amount of time you spend in a long-term care facility is six months. That's and, the average. You know and that's because you go in six months before you die. Yeah. Okay. Not, 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 you may not have the state available. I feel like that, that is a great example of something where you wouldn't want to use the mean. You'd rather use the median. The median. Right? Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but the median is undoubtedly shorter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would guess so. Oops. Um, but one other fact that seemed to be interesting that the Pfizer vaccine didn't seem to have any mini side effects. I don't know what, if I've got, I typically get a, a 24 hour mini flu and I get the flu vaccine. I don't know how you guys react to it. It's nothing horrible. Um, but apparently the Moderna vaccine frequently gives people sufficient illness that they have to stay home from work. For how long? 24 hours. But Adi, are, you, are, you elimin- are you eliminating the anaphylactic shock that no, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. that that's that's life threatening. <laughs> yeah. So what, what is this, Eric? So um, when they first gave it in, in the UK, um, what ended up happening was like for a couple of the first few patients um, actually had an anaphylactic shock reaction. Like an allergic an reaction. Allergic those, it is, again, worth noting that those people already had a prehistory of allergic reactions. No, no, no I understand that. But I, I think, Shane, as you saw, we found the data that apparently 15% of people have such a reaction to things like carry EpiPens. For, yeah. and I happen to be married to one, by the way. Is um, it really 15%? 15% of wow. people is what the, is the data that I saw. And so the question becomes, and also just so you know, I know, Adi, you've probably looked at this. They even said those people weren't in the trials intentionally. They intentionally yeah. left out people in mm-hmm. the trials that, that mm-hmm. potentially could have anaphylactic shock. So that's a big unknown about that population. Though at least kind of pushing it forward it's not it would be worse if it was sort of like random people that did not know that they were prone to anaphylactic shocks sure. were getting that from this vaccine this is at least people that we at least we know ahead of time that they should be let me say the good news about let me it. say the good news shane assuming they either give you uh your you know vaccine either in the doctor's office a hospital or in a pharmacy um they sh- in my view um they should not let you go- they don't but they should not let you just immediately walk out they, if there's going to be an anaphylactic uh, effect, they've found that it's going to be fairly immediate. So have the person sit there. And if it does, you, you know, stab them with an EpiPen and let them walk out then. Yeah, no. And, I, and, I, and in fact, I, I talked to my uh, one of my UK colleague, uh, friends over the weekend who is a, a doctor and who they're kind of starting tomorrow or something like that is going to be vaccinating people they've had to ba- they had to basically overhaul their kind of vaccination plan for that exact fact. So they they're it's complicated because they have, you know, the, that weird, like they, it, it comes in five units of five doses. So they have to be somewhat thoughtful about how they give it out. But it's also now they have to kind of build in this waiting time, essentially, right. before they let people go after getting vaccinated. Well, guys, t- tell me how you think we're going to see the impact of these vaccines. What By what measure and over what course of time do you think we'll start observing the impact of the vaccine? Well, I'll venture a guess that we would see it by February, but I think we're also going to see confounding reductions because this 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 second stage, and I think it's fully uh, able to call it that at this point, even though it's complicated. 
um, well, should have probably reduced itself down by February as well, right? So. Okay, so hold on. You're saying first, set aside vaccines. We have to see the current kind of spike play out a little bit. Yeah. And so you are thinking it's going to play out some, and, and that's why? Because municipal, municipalities are finally enforcing new measures. Is that what's going to do it? That's always partly. It also, but, you know, but Adi, that's going to go, up, right? talk about confounding. I mean, we've got, we've got a, we got a force in the opposite direction, which is cold weather and more indoor activities. And to some extent, uh, uh, people being kind of done with this whole thing. So you, but you think net net still we'll see. This and and there, there, there might be enough variation to kind of separate out that confounding that Audie mentioned only yeah. because, you know, I mean, I, I think Audie's thinking about like places like Pennsylvania where they've again, increased restrictions where there's no indoor dining, really kind of like encouraging people to not yeah. do in, any kind of indoor events of more than 10 people. Other places in the US are not doing that. So, I mean, maybe post hoc, we'll be able to kind of separate out like how much that kind of ad- those additional restrictions affected Pennsylvania versus some other place that didn't do it. So Florida that, that, that adamantly refuses to do anything about COVID will be able to see the pure effect of the vaccine. <laughs> you're right. so I, I think out of your forecast is probably right. I don't know that we're going to see a measurable effect for the next, it could be two months. And, um, you know, unfortunately, obviously the forecasts now have, you know, by March 1st, which is not a little over two months from now, have unfortunately a prediction of 500,000 deaths by then. So the question is, what you know what it's a great question Cade. which things are going to go down so hold on, eric eric on your, on your point just then five hundred thousand is two hundred thousand more than we have now you're talking I about us that. we just passed three hundred thousand whose forecast are these is this not just this I, is not just the ihme this is most of the consensus forecasts have about three averaging about three thousand deaths a day or 2500 for the next 70 days which will get you to five hundred thousand. And, it'll get and it is true everywhere. that at least for the next like probably 45 to 60 days of those, like any kind of vaccination we were do is probably not going to, you know, is, is going to be kind of too late to affect those kind of daily deaths. Right. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, interesting. So a couple of things about those forecasts generally, historically, we should go back and go check them. But most of these forecasts have generally ran high since the very beginning. Um, <laughs> Is I, that, I mean, is that I, true? I think that's right. Sure. Absolutely. Oh no, I, I mean IHME, for example. I remember looking at this thing back in March, and it's like, is it going to be one hundred twenty-five thousand, or is it going to be two hundred thousand? Oh, no, like two hundred thousand was date. on the high end. Those were those were oh these. I'm I'm, I'm talking about dated forecasts. Like by this date, we're going to have. Oh, it's true. Um, I, yeah, yeah. And true. for I just give you one number. The 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 the, the, the low number was three hundred thousand by December one. We we didn't hit to three hundred thousand until like just a couple of days ago. Um. Anyway, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to take the under on that. So I took the under on December one and I, and I'm going to take the under on, uh, on, on March one, 500,000. I know where you guys stand on that. Well, what, uh, I'll, so I'll give you, here it is. 500,000 plus or minus um, 35,000. Oh, so you, now I, we can have an under, oh, an under over and a middle. I get yeah, the yeah. interval estimate on it. Of course yeah, I yeah. do. I'm, I mean, I'm and if you, I, I would still, I, I mean, I would still, I, I guess I would probably take the under. Even on, on 35,000? On, 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 on even like, you know, 500,000 minus that 35,000. On what basis? Like, why, why are y'all, what are y'all saying is going to happen that the forecast is getting wrong? Shane and I. Uh, well, so I, I doubt those forecasts. I'm sure those forecasts, I mean, those forecasts are probably making some pretty, 
broad guesses at how vaccination is going to roll out and how quickly it is. And though I don't think it's going to be a particularly efficient process, I think it will have an impact by March 1st, certainly. And I also think those forecasts probably don't build in are, again, constantly improving medicine for dealing with this because this is forecasting deaths, right? Yeah. And so, you know, one thing that has been it probably not at a constant rate, but it's been a constant through all this is that our, 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 our knowledge and medicine for treating COVID once people have it is constantly improving. The death Just to rate- be clear, by the way, I'm on their website right now. The IHME by March 1st has 467,000 is their projection right now. Which is, which is kind of like your-, your Plus or minus, by the way, just to let you know, their interval estimate goes from 417 to 510. So I wasn't far off in my- What, interval, yeah. what, what interval is that supposed to be? That's probably 95. I, I would guess. It doesn't say, but I would guess. So that's a pretty wide. There's a, that's there's, pretty a wide. Website, there's a website called that has an ensemble of forecasts. Actually, Neil Payne, if you're listening, thanks, Neil, for the reference. Um, uh, it's an ensemble of COVID forecasts, and I actually played around with it. And one of the things that it does is each of the forecasts comes with an interval. Um, a 95, you could choose it to be 95 or 50. One of the paradoxes of the forecasts is surprisingly how many of the forecasts 95 intervals don't overlap with each other. Wow. I always find that entertaining when, yeah, when that is fun. Well, that me, is fun. Let me, I mean, not really fun. Let me tell you something even cool. more interesting about these projections. Remember, I told you the mean was 467. Yeah. Without, I'll, I won't tell you the number, I'll have you each guess. They have a scenario called rapid vaccine rollout. What do you think the 467 number drops to if rapid vaccine rollout? I'll not throw very out, much uh, lower. 420,000? Yeah, that's what I would guess, 425. 460. Wow. Just to let you know, the only thing that drops it to 420 is universal masks. That drops it to 420. (laughs) And by the way, that's actual universal, not, you know, that's enforced as opposed to just kind of... And just to show you the reverse direction, the up measure... Universal mask usage, not universal mask recommendation. That's right. Right. And if the mandates ease, meaning if people get rid of, so say, yeah, free society there, the number will go up according to this projection to 530,000. So rapid vaccine is a 7,000 effect size and mandates and universal mass either direction is about a 40 to 50,000 effect size. Okay. So this has done a very good job for me, at least of clarifying when we should expect the impact of vaccine. And it is essentially not before March 1st. We have Correct. got this, we've got this two and a half month window in front of us where we're not going to see the impact kind of regardless of what happens. Yeah. The interesting bit then becomes on the other side of that, what difference it makes. And Adi's yeah. saying, well, on the one hand, we're going to be coming down that slope anyway, probably. And so it's going to be a little hard to see. No, that's effect. true. I mean, if, if, if the vaccine effects really were only going to be detectable in like March or April, say, for example, then it is going to be inherently confounded with kind of the whatever seasonality that this virus displays anyway. One, one last question for you guys, and then we need to round, we need to round out, out of here. What impact do you think the new presidential administration is going to be able to have on any of this stuff? So presumably maybe some impact on vaccine, but set aside the vaccine, just any of the policies or behaviors in the country. Do you think there'll be any impact in January and February from a Biden administration? Yeah, I think Biden's going to tell everybody to wear a mask. And I'm sure the people who like weren't listening before will totally listen then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so my sarcasm, you can say, ah, you can infer that I, I think there's going to be minimal effect of the new. Well, that goes to show that I mean, these so much is driven by these norms, and the norms were established really early on, and they are also heavily influenced by political. Yeah, and early on, early on when they could have counted, they were very contradictory. Yeah, let's be let's be fair. That was from lack of information. Yeah, and also they didn't they didn't have enough masks for people, so they actively discouraged people from using them. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, um, it's we, we, the vaccine is being distributed, and that's the first time, and 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 we've been able to say that, and it's absolutely remarkable that it's happening in December. If yep. you look at the forecast, it is a huge March, win. It, like in at the higher level, it's wonderful that it's happened so quickly. It doesn't right. seem quick to any of us, I'm sure. But well, it is we're, we we talk about forecasts and analytics, and um, if you look at the forecast for when that was going to happen, when this thing broke back in March and April, the forecasts were, I mean. No, in some places, years after this. It's incredible. It's Do not really, underplay it's really this. Else. It's not only um, one, it's two. Yeah. Say that again, Odd. It's not only one vaccine, it's two. And more, more to come, Adi. Not just the come. mRNA ones. There's more to okay. come. All right. Speaking of more to come, that's been the first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now, open discussion in the world of sports. Got the whole crew in here, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradley. You guys can jump in with questions online at WMoneyBall is our Twitter handle at WMoneyBall or send us an email, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Guys, uh, did you happen to watch the game last night because it was a doozy? Yeah, it was incredible. It was a great game. Very back and forth. I, 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 I mean, you know, I feel like those NFC North matchups are all, or sorry, AFC North matchups are always uh, very compelling anyway, but that one was, it's nice to see basically, you know, the Browns being able to kind of, you know, compete with the Ravens and Steelers yeah, the, of the world. Browns, the Browns are real. That's what yeah. you have to say. But here's the thing also, you watch that game. And I say to myself, do I see either of those teams beating Kansas City? Probably not. Maybe. Maybe on a bad day. I mean, I just saw um, Patrick <laughs> Holmes throw three picks to the Miami Dolphins, which almost gave the Miami – by the way, who, the Dolphins can compete too now, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, put this way. It's not like – I think everyone wants to ordain that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl and going to win it. They're not a 90-10 favorite to win the Super Bowl. I watched that game against the Dolphins. They could lose to the Dolphins. Anybody could lose to the Bills. The Bills are a competitive team. Cleveland's a competitive team. Baltimore's a competitive team. The Steelers, despite the two losses, they're a competitive team. You could make an argument that this is the lowest variance from high to low right now in the AFC that we've seen in a while. Like I don't, I don't quite get that. I don't get that. I don't yeah, I mean, variance is, it's tough. I mean, among, I the, top can, can, among Kansas, the top teams. Kansas City is like, I, I'm, I'm trying to think now for the last few years, and maybe, you know, I've got weird Patriots bias, but like, I, I think Kansas City right now is, is, is a stronger kind of number one team. Like, I agree that on any given Sunday, one of the teams that you mentioned can beat the Chiefs. But if if I was to attach a probability to Kansas City being in the Super Bowl, I mean, let's just talk about the AFC being in the making it to yeah. the Super Bowl. I would give that a higher probability than I would the kind of number one seed 
in the past four or five years. Like I think okay. I, we yeah, I, we're, we're in kind of in we're in any given Sunday territory as far yeah. as us envisioning a team beating them. Mahomes has to have a bad game coupled with them having an incredible game. And even then, I mean, because the thing in like with the Dolphins this weekend, Mahomes had a bad part of a game and the Dolphins were playing very well and they still didn't win. Yeah, exactly. We've seen, we've seen Mahomes have bad quarters. We've seen them have yep. questionable halves, but they can turn he it on. He didn't even play so very quick. well in the Super Bowl, but he still won it. Exactly. They can, when they turn it on, it happens. They can so score fast. at will. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I, so I can envision one of these teams beating the chiefs. And in fact, if I had to rank them, I think the bills probably are actually my kind of current number two team in my mind, even though they're not the number two seed. So I have, I have a different, I have a different second team. Mm. I I'm starting to buy into this Titan team and not because I believe Ryan Tannehill is that great, but because I believe Derek Henry is that mm-hmm. great. And I remember the Titans last year in the playoffs and yeah. you know, if Derek Henry can run for 200 yards yeah. and they can hold on to the ball for, you know, I'm thinking, you know, Shane, something I'm thinking giants build super bowl from whatever it was, 1990, yeah. just don't give the bills the football. They score at, you remember the bills scored every time in that super bowl. Cave certainly remembers as a bills guy, maybe even was living in Buffalo. That was the year, that was the year before I moved to Buffalo. Okay. Yeah. The year before I knew you were in Buffalo around that time. Cause I know when our mutual friend moved to Buffalo as well. Um, I'm thinking you could absolutely, I could see the Titans. I That's mean, the, they have the right kind of game plan. If you had to kind of come up with sort of like, what's the best way to beat these chiefs, it would be never give them the ball, run it constantly. So I agree. And that's kind of how the Patriots beat them two years ago. But I ask a question, Eric, you brought up Derrick Henry, a running back, right? I'm not confused about that. I, I watch enough uh, and I follow uh, tweet, Twitter and sports analytics uh, football to know that running backs aren't supposed to be that important. Am, am I missing something? <laughs> He's having kind of a historic year though. Yeah, but that, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Was that really going to matter at the, in a playoff game against a top team? I, I mean, I guess that's a discussion. I mean, I would argue again, you know, seven or eight times out of 10 against Kansas city, probably not. But, you know, if a team was to beat Kansas city, I think, well, a power running game such that Derrick Henry would be able to kind of do would be the way to do it. And you don't have to look very far to see the divisional round last year with mm-hmm. the number one team in the league, the Ravens. Now, of course, they've got their own issues. They're not good at playing behind, et cetera, et cetera. But they were big favorites. So it wasn't, wasn't a small favorite. That was a big favorite. And they got rolled by the Titans. I mean, it was not a very competitive game. No, so, I mean, and, and the Patriots before the Titans was, I mean, was not as quite a, as big of a favorite underdog in balance, but also got rolled by those same Titans. And for a half, KC got rolled exactly. by those Titans. It's just that, you know, they, you know, Mahomes came back. And again, so in defense, in defense of Eric, so I, Shane and I pretty strongly have a feeling that KC, it feels KC is more head and shoulders, but yes, but in defense of Eric, there, there are a number of teams just below that, that are, <laughs> relatively close so let me just give you massive peabody numbers to put some some concrete behind it so we have casey number one at plus 8.72 and then the rams have slipped all the way up to second by the way the next afc team is pittsburgh about a point and a half back and then baltimore just behind pittsburgh and then tennessee a couple spots below but and then buffalo a couple spots below that so buffalo at eight tennessee at six but if you go all the way to buffalo and put them on a neutral field against KC. KC's only like a four-point favorite. That's my point. 
They won't be playing on a neutral field, unfortunately. No, no, but no, they might be playing with not 70,000 people or 80,000 in Arrowhead Stadium. Um, and also remember the biggest advantage, Shane, you've always said this, the biggest advantage is there's only one team that gets a bye this year. Mm-hmm. And Kansas City's looking strong to be that team, by the way, to yeah. get that bye. So that's yeah. a huge difference. But if you told me there are, five, I mean, you just named paid five teams, if I counted right, maybe six that are within four points of each other. Yeah. Four I mean, and a half, four point three, something like that. All right. So what what's that? Is that better than 70, 30 odds? Probably not. So well, well, let's go to a different source then. Look at the Chiefs' current betting odds to win the AFC and their odds on favorites. They're minus one. I know, but the difference is again, one less game. No, yeah, but I mean, let's let's what what about what I mean, let's just compare to the NFC. I assume that the Chiefs are kind of head and shoulders. The, the, the amount that the, head and, the Chiefs are head and shoulders beyond the AFC is not happening, certainly over in the NFC this year. And I would argue is not has not happened even in the AFC for many for, for the past few years. Wasn't wasn't I mean, Kay, you'll remember because it's Massey Peabody. How what was the plus of, let's say, New England two, three years? Weren't they plus 10, 11? Yeah, I, this is. I had the same intuition. Looking at these numbers, it's getting late in the year for us not to be in double double digits on that top team. Hmm. So the this, the way these rankings work is because we're uncertain early on that they kind of reach out as we go through the season. We get more information on a team, and the top team grows from like plus five to plus seven to plus eight, and usually gets up to into plus ten, plus twelve territory. But we haven't seen quite as much growth this year so far, and this is all. This is all. Um, supporting Eric's contention that it's a little closer, but I sure do have the same feeling that Shane does. And maybe it's just too many years of watching those guys, no matter how bad or shaky they look for a quarter. Well, they can I just, just, just to give you, I mean, I understand this is not at Massey Peabody and deep analytics, but let me tell you the game winning margin of the chiefs in the last five games, they beat the Panthers by two, the Raiders by four, the Bucks by three, the Broncos by six and the Dolphins by six. So that's yeah. your team that's dominating everybody? No, no, they're not dominating everybody. They just no, and they they haven't even been playing that well. It's just whenever they need whenever they need to score, they can basically do it at will. And I think I, I honestly think I, I don't know if it's a design, actual offensive design, but it seems like that team kind of naturally slow plays slow because if they actually scored at will like they are capable of doing their defense would have would be dead of cardiac arrest by the end of the game because they'd be you know they wouldn't get any rest like i think I'm they gonna, purposely I'm gonna, we're going to by next week we'll do an analysis of massey peabody we'll take a look at the top 5 or 6 teams we'll look at the variation we'll yeah. look at the point spreads i predict that we'll find out that this year there's a lot more teams that have let's say higher than a one third chance so I just took, I picked a random year. You asked for new England and I picked a random year, 2016. And I, I dropped a good year. week 15, which is where we are. And new England was number one at plus eight, five, five, which is remarkably close to where KC is at plus eight, seven, two. Yeah. And so that's just one year, one week. But Eric's raising a reasonable question, which is no, and, and, and I mean, like, I, for all I know, I mean, I, I have a very kind of biased perspective of New England. For all I know, this is kind of how people thought about New England in some of those years, too, that these guys can basically score at will and, like, you know, like you, you, you kind of have to just catch yeah. them on a, a, I mean, Shane, a, a listening any to you, given listening Sunday to, to beat talk, them, so. Listening to you talk, I think you're just 
full of it. I mean, there's no way you're, you're sound like a typical non-analytical fan. who's like, Oh yeah. When they, it's, it's, they play close games, but when they want to, it's like, mostly that's not the way it works with great teams. No, mostly great teams win by a lot. They don't, they don't mess around. And so yeah, I think, no, I mean, say, like they're not historic, like, you know, like if we were to go back, I mean, I'm sure you don't have Massey Peabody back to 2007, but when the, that 2007 Patriots team would have been much more favored in all this. And they were kind right. of, they, they weren't only winning, but, you know, they had some close games in that season, but they were mostly dominating teams in a way that they're not is doing Is this right worth now. zero in your analysis, which is that um, when's the last time a team has won the Super Bowl two years in a row? It doesn't happen very often, period. Well, uh, the, the, Shane would know. The Patriots did, yeah. Yep, that's the last time. Is I just want to yeah. ask you, Adi talks about base rates. Is that a base rate statistic? that you would use to adjust at all Kansas City winning two years in a row. It hasn't happened in 17 consecutive years. It hasn't happened that much in the history of the Super Bowl. It hasn't happened that much. The Broncos did it. Okay, so you asked that your first line was the right line, which is, does this add any explanatory power? So we've already got great models that try to understand teams. And you're asking, the the only way that could possibly factor in is if there's some kind of mean reversion in team performance around championships. And it's a little hard to believe that, right? It's a little hard to come up with a mechanism that would literally say the team, all out, you, all the observables given, they're actually less likely to repeat if they won last year. You get worse, well, you, you get worse draft picks. So that's one. But that would, and, you, and I mean, usually, usually players- that would, show up, that would show up in the power rankings. So you're saying above and beyond the power rankings. It depends it how the power rankings are constructed. I'm saying by the end of the, uh, it depends how the power rankings are constructed. Yes. I mean, I, I think repeating a championship or even repeating getting to the Super Bowl is difficult just because you typically, you know, getting to the Super Bowl is some mixture of luck and, 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 and skill, and you don't have the, necessarily the guarantee of that luck the next season. Sure. But that's right. But it doesn't make it you know, less. And, and I, and it, you know, Kansas City could get unlucky in the playoffs or something like that. Certainly, I mean, we have—it's not guaranteed. But regression to the mean is different yeah. than mean reversion. And, and oh, and yeah, no, strong, that's right. Strong hypothesis is the strong form of hypothesis is that they're actually less likely, and it, it's hard to come up with it. Adi's trying to jump yeah, in. I mean, this is fascinating, but I think you should clarify the difference between conditional on your ranking and the unconditional mm. probability. Yeah. yeah. So I think that you know, Eric is right that there are certain disadvantages that one gets when you win that will lower your chance in the future. But conditional on your ranking, no, <laughs> that should completely be absorbed. I mean, you might want to put that in the very early part of the season. By now, it should go away. And also, let me just throw out power here. Um, one every 17. I mean, I would guess in the preseason, you can probably get rid of how many of the 30 teams would essentially give them no chance. How many of the 32 teams? It means that about one every 15 years, if all the top teams, I mean, it's not unreasonable to go every 15 years before someone wins twice. Assuming that you're, you're, you know, if you won the one year, you'll be in the, in the top half the next year. So is there, is it longer than what, than say 15, which would be one out of 15 years or is it, or is it about, No, I I, I bet you're about right. In fact, but I just want to point out that there's a lot of rhetoric that goes in exactly the opposite direction, which is the team knows how to win. Oh yeah. They've been there before and they can handle the pressure and all of that stuff. There's a lot of narrative that would say, no, they're actually more likely to win having won one year. And Eric, you're a momentum guy. Come on, man. You're trying, you're trying to play the other side of the field now? 
I was just pointing out an empirical fact that I thought, now I'm, I'm glad to hear Massey Peabody backed up what I said, which is, if you told me that I'm even shocked that it's as close as you were saying that there's half a dozen teams, five, six teams that were within four points of the chiefs. No I've watched their, team. I've watched a lot of their games and they're not just like able to just turn it on that, you know, I, I'm okay. not, I'm, I'm selling the chiefs. I'm taking the field against the chiefs. I'm taking the field against I'll, the chiefs. I'll take that it. action. I'll take, I that always action. take the field. Can I get one data point? Uh, Cade, you might know, I, I should, I should, I should never underestimate Eric's ability to know a fact, but how many um, sequential championships have there? How many, how many times you said the, the, uh, the Broncos there's been repeated champions. Yeah, repeated champ. And they're, it's and they're it's happened like probably five or six times in the NFL. Well, that's yeah. more than the than the fourteen or than the I guess you'd expect it about four times maybe or five times if it's just uh, if it's half. You know, every team there's always a winner. The next year you eliminate half the teams. You call the rest of them equally likely. Well, there's no, not equally likely. It's very interesting. No, they're not right. So I think we're seeing exactly the number we're expect to see. Not not fewer. Adi, mm-hmm. what's very interesting is. It happened a lot in the first, let's call it the first 30 years of the Super Bowl. The uh, Packers sure. won, the 49ers, the Cowboys, the Red well, Yeah, It's almost, it's not happened in the last 30 years. I mean, it's happened. The 20- Patriots did it. The Patriots but, almost did it a second time too. Right. But the Broncos did it. The Broncos won twice, the two yeah. Elway Super Bowls. And the Patriots have done it. That's it. That is mm-hmm. it since so, the last 30 years. Oh, Matt's clarified that it's actually happened seven times total. So that's well, but, but but also five the, in the first thirty years. Of the yeah, season, that's right. No, I, I think it's increasingly 20. difficult. I mean, there's more teams. Well, but hold on, um, more but, structural than that. There, are three, yeah. there's there's one they they flipped the draft order, but more important, there's salary cap, free I, agency in the early '90s completely changed this thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, we all know uh, Shane that the uh, Seahawks should have done it twice. Should have done it. <laughs> yeah, no, they <laughs> they probably should have. I'll, I'll I'll give you that. I'll give you that. If you I, give I me come... oh, if you would give me oh seven, I'd trade you that for the Seattle one. I knew you'd say that. Good for you. Yeah. I want to come back to the game last night. If you did, if you did watch it, what what mo- there's so many things that stand out. I'm, I'm stood out. I'm curious as you reflected on. I, I, I you know ten minutes after the game was over, I watched the highlights and I was. Remembering things yeah. that have been the most remarkable thing I'd already forgotten because so many. No, things- I mean it, it was it was kind of I I think it's probably this season's close equivalent to that like crazy KC LA Rams game that was like last year that or two years ago that like was like fifty points aside or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. It felt like that where it was just like you know amazing play after amazing play. I mean, I, I kind of want to kind of get the betters kind of take on this, right? Because that's the other kind of element about the end of the game that I think is really interesting because basically. Um, you know, it was, it was essentially a push. So like, you know, when Baltimore took a, a, a three point lead by the end, by the way, the line was three and a half, by the way, Shane, but go ahead. A lot of so so the Baltimore was up by three with like two seconds left. So there's only one play left. And so I think most of the betting world really thought that was going to be the line of the game. And then of course, on the last play, they did this desperation, lateral, 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 that just went backwards and they ended up giving up a safety turning it into a five-point game. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of wonder the amount of money that moved as a consequence a of that. <laughs> we, yeah. we, there, was, there was a lot of talk about how much money moved. And I mean, the it's it's such a crazy way. That game was already phenomenal. And then for that to happen, for yeah. that backdoor cover to happen, um, or bad beat, depending on what side of it you're on. Um, the thing that struck me toward the end of the game was how teams kept on, the offenses kept on getting done what they needed to get done. It was almost like a, 
a, a watching a golf match where sometimes guys win and some guys, sometimes guys lose, you know, and they kind of come back to somebody. This was one of those golf matches where they won, like players kept on doing better things, better things, better yeah. things. They kept on passing each other. I mean, the number of fourth down conversions that were made and multiple times for touchdowns, multiple yeah. fourth down conversions for touchdowns from beyond the red zone. Um, the, I mean, 57 yard, 57, 55 yard, field goal in those conditions i mean just one thing after i mean does justin tucker ever miss come out of the locker room no he doesn't miss it's isn't it just testimonial that football is about offense and we love to see scoring yeah it is is i mean defense is incredibly important to winning the game but i I, you know it doesn't matter but as far as like these exciting games yeah i mean i i think most people would look back on the Patriots Eagles Super Bowl as a, a more entertaining game than the Patriots Rams Super Bowl. For sure. Or, you know, but, but I, I mean, I would, I would point out, I believe that for almost all sports, that's true. I mean, we like, I mean, you think of basketball, if it's a 50, 50 game, I mean, that's, you didn't see in professionals, but a low scoring basketball, mm-hmm. is that as interesting as a high scoring? Maybe it is. Um, hockey, um, is that as interesting if it's low scoring? No. Soccer is, is, is a one nothing game more exciting than a zero zero game in soccer. That the, mm-hmm. the science is unclear on that. Yeah, I, I just compared a high scoring versus low scoring. Uh, is, is football unique in this capacity? In no. or a standout that the offense really is what's no, but it is it is it is one of the sports where offense has gained an upper hand in recent years and has really kind of changed even in just the last five years. I would say. Speaking of exciting, I, I wanted to get your take on. You know, I looked at the win probability chart, the in-game win probability chart for this game afterwards, and it's it's remarkable. Um, and, but but it, but it raised a question for me: is how how might you judge the excitingness of a game from a win probability chart? What statistic might you suggest that would capture that? And uh, so I posted this and asked the question. So we had some responses online. I'll give, but let's go to Adi first. I would do weighted uh, numbers of crosses of fifty. 50%. Yeah, I was thinking something like that. The number of times it crosses, but not just the way because you can have a bunch of crosses with two equally equally measured teams in the beginning. That's not that exciting as each score. Uh, no, so yeah, you'd want to wait it for kind of end of the game with, with the gap. So it's sort of not just across, but also weighted by how far you cross. Yeah. Oh, so weighted, weighted, doubly weighted for time of game and for distance across. Yeah. But but and yeah, numbers, but, numbers of times the number of crosses. In, in the in the interest of parsimony, I like kind of like the I kind of like just the number of crosses. It's not a bad it's not a bad place. But looking at this chart, did y'all know that whenever uh, whenever the Browns tied the game, they still had in this chart they had the Ravens still as a favorite, like a high fifties favorite. They well, I remember to- when they, when they scored that when Cream Hunt scored that touchdown. The first thing I said is, "Oh, that was too quick." <laughs> well, they had <laughs> some they, time. they left like a minute left. Yeah, they had some time. But also, I don't think that they understood at that point how impossible it was for the Ravens to stop the Browns' offense. I mean, if that thing had gone to overtime, unless they, they – the Browns were going to score a touchdown if they got the ball. And so that, that was just inevitable yeah. given what had happened at that point. Um, but interestingly, let me give you a, a reaction that we got from, from online, and that was um, this game excitement index that a guy put together for Luke Benz. Luke is, it was out of the Yale, um, one of the, he was an undergrad at Yale and he was part of the statistical group there. And he posted a response and posted a blog where he had created this game excitement index. And you know what it is? It's just the, it's the total length of the win probability chart. Path, oh, okay. Normalized for the length of the game. And so it's just the, how much that thing moves around essentially, which is a, I think it kind of, it's a sophisticated 
yeah. but simple summary of, uh, of, I think it's reasonable proxy for what happens. Um, and, and he had the numbers like the using device. this metric, was this kind of one of the most exciting games of the season so far? Or, uh, yeah, no, we need, he, he wrote it for college basketball and oh, we okay. need someone to take his, we need someone Crunch to take the numbers. And, and again, I'd love to see, for example, that Rams KC game from a couple of sure. years back, whether that's sure. one of the top ones, et cetera. Cause so it's certainly course, Brian, thinking back, it seemed like it in my mind, you know? Well, you know, as you might expect, Brian Burke has already generated something like this. So he had an excitement index and he did it in like 07 or something. And he archived seven or eight years worth of games. And so you could look up all these games, mm -hmm. but you know, the 07 internet has disappeared at this point. Right. We need an update. We need an update on those things. All right, guys, that has been a second quarter and a, and a long quarter on NFL. We couldn't get past the NFL on that one, but we still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. I got the whole crew here. Shane Jensen is still here. Audie Weiner is still here. Eric Bradlow is still here. And this is Cade Massey. We've just talked about the NFL, but we really only talked about the AFC and Monday Night Football. Is there more, guys? Is there more? Is there, did something happen to the NFC play over the weekend? Does Jalen Hurts, for example, leads the Eagles to a victory. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you watched that or caught some part of that. Do you believe in Hurts? Are you converted on Hurts? Not based on one game, no. I mean, it was very impressive and especially impressive against a, you know one of the top defenses in the NFL. So, I mean, I think um, – You mean it, him it running for 107 yards, not him throwing for 167. That's not that impressive. Yeah. No, I mean, I think actually him avoiding sacks. I don't. Was he sacked once? I don't think he was sacked. No. And that's. I mean. And, no. and again, it's with the same O line. So I mean, like it's an, it's interesting. That's an interesting aspect because I think we've talked on the show many times in the past about you know the sack is, is in people's mind is the sack more associated with the quarterback or with the line around him? And I know there's been a lot of research that sort of like suggested it's more on the quarterback actually. That's right. And I mean, you know, they, the Eagles did go from basically being sad. I don't know. Carson Wentz was averaging something like six, seven sacks a game, I think to go down to zero against one of the top defenses in the game. There might be something kind of prospective in that. Well, yeah. you also want to talk about something that has a, you know, Titanic shift in the NFC, not so much because of the Eagles, but the Saints now no longer kind of control the destiny for mm -hmm. the number one spot. Yeah. Uh, it, it could well be the Packers. Um, the Packers actually own the tiebreaker because they beat the Saints. And, you know, the Saints not at the number one. It's an extra game, which obviously has an effect. Um, it's possibly a road game for them at Lambeau. Um, that game may come back and say, you know, well, Drew Brees got that one Super Bowl ring, and you know, wow! If the Saints hadn't lost to the Eagles that Sunday, maybe who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, do we know when we expect Brees back? They're slow playing it, right? They're slow playing it. But they, I mean, this is what I hate about that buy system. I hate one team getting a buy. It's just too big an advantage for one team to get. It's too big a bump for. Yeah, and I mean, you can't imagine a, like at least cl climate-wise a bigger difference than the New Orleans like dome compared to Lambeau Field <laughs> in, in January. January. I mean, I don't think you could have a bigger shift in and terms of And by the way, just to let you know, another reason why the Packers are really favored, not just because they own the tiebreaker, but New Orleans is playing this team. Oh, they're playing Kansas City this week. Yeah, yeah. this week. <laughs> so that could be a problem. Yeah. yeah. So that, that looks like a, New Orleans is hosting the game, but they're a three-point dog. We were just talking about 
can Kansas City lose? You know, with the Saints without Breeze, it's still it's still hard to see it happening. But stranger things have happened. Stranger thing happened. That almost loss every would almost not only guarantee, but yeah. given I've I've seen the Packers schedule. If New Orleans loses this game to Kansas City, they're not going to be the one seed. They're just yeah. not. Eric, the, you're, we talked about Bucks Vikings before the game. Uh, they did they did pull it out. So what's your current thinking on Tampa Bay? How are you feeling about your team? Not good. Um, Tom Brady is still missing open receivers. Um, he's still floating the ball up a lot. He's still, you know, the minute you pressure him up the middle, he gets rid of the ball way too quickly. Um, his throws aren't particularly accurate. He, he made a couple nice throws. Um, also, if the uh, the Vikings kicker hadn't missed three field goals and an extra point, that game easily could have gone differently. It's not just the 10 points. It's the field okay. position that you get, um, everything else. Um, yeah, the Bucs were a little bit better than the Vikings, but I don't see the Buccaneers as being, at the moment, they're still not yet, I don't see them beating the Packers on the road, I don't see them beating the uh, the Saints on the road, I don't see them beating the Rams on the road, I, I just, I don't, I think they're where they are. They're yeah, the, I, 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 I think Tom Brady, Tom Brady's done basically what we kind of expected preseason, or at least I expected preseason for him to do. He's taken a team that was what, like seven and nine or something last year? Seven and nine. Seven and nine. And he's elevated them to a playoff team. Right. I, 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 I did kind of get early on, you know, I got, kind of got into the hype where I was thinking they might be a Super Bowl contender, but I don't think they're a Super Bowl contender, but he, he's basically taken like a, slightly below average team and elevated them to the playoffs. But I, I agree with Eric. I don't consider them in kind of the Super Bowl contender strata of teams. Anything quickly, anything from this coming weekend, you just mentioned KC New Orleans. It's, it looks like a relatively spotty schedule to me. I think that Pat's Miami minor playoff implications, but that, that AFC East is always kind of fun, especially with Miami. Miami's a favorite guys. I mean, how long has it been since Miami's yeah. been a favorite hosting the, the Patriots? That's good fun. There is one game now all of a sudden that has some teeth, which is the um, Seahawks at the Redskins. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. The Washington football team. Sorry. Yeah. Seahawks yeah, yeah, yeah. at the Washington football team. All of a sudden Washington's in first place. They've won four straight. They beat right. the Steelers and the 49ers in the last two weeks. All of a sudden they're not so bad. Or Browns Giants got flexed into uh, I, I is that the one that got flexed into the Sunday night game? Did we ever see that coming? That Browns versus Giants <laughs> would get flexed into the Sunday night game? Oh, that's pretty amazing. That's true. That's wonderful. Yeah. The Browns. So, I mean that. A- so I, I think there are a couple surprising games with playoff or, or you know games that were surprised have major playoff implications, like Browns versus Giants and football team versus Seahawks. Okay. Which well, is let's, cool. let's talk about games with implications this weekend. Let's change focus to college football. The conference championships are this weekend, as well as a lot of makeup games. We got a kind of a full slate of college football because there's so many people making up games. In fact, even the big, the big 10, you know, remember they had this great concept of we're not only going to play a championship game, we're going to pit our number two versus number two down to, you know, the bottom of the bottom of the conference. But now half of those games are, instead of that, they are makeup games. But we've got a nice slate of conference championship games, at least, you know, a meaningful slate of conference championship games. Are you particularly excited or interested in anything? Well, I mean, I'm kind of interested. I mean, I'm interested. Maybe we'll talk about a little bit more. Just, I mean, I don't know how I haven't looked ahead to this uh, weekend slate, but like how the decision making 
um, is going to go with like a team like Ohio State. That's just not going to, you know, like oh, they're going to win, win and end. I'll tell you the decision making win and end. Yeah. And by the way, they're 20 point favorites. And so I think you can count on Ohio State being in the playoff. That's we, we can move on next. I think, well, I mean, we got to see the. That's going to be controversial, though. Like, let's say Clemson yeah. loses again. Yeah. Does not does Clemson does Clemson like like assuming they lose to Notre Dame? We're we're, we're out. Out. you're regarding them as out. out. Do they not have even though like a more impressive body of work than Ohio State? You're you're, you're they have like you're, twice you're, as many wins. I think you got the right battle and the wrong contenders. It's it's like an A and M who is possibly the second best team in the SEC, but they're not even in the conference championship game because they're behind right. Alabama. They lost to Alabama. Right. They got one loss. They play a ten game SEC slate. They end up nine and mm-hmm. one. And then Ohio State's going to – their most impressive victory is going to be a close one against Indiana and five games. Look, there's uh, never been a team in the history of mankind rooting for Notre Dame more than Texas A&M is. Because yeah. if Texas A&M – if Notre Dame beats Clemson, Clemson, two lost Clemson's out. Texas A&M beats Tennessee, likely. Texas A&M's going. Texas A&M, Ohio State, Alabama, Notre Dame. That's it. Yeah. I think that's I think that's reasonable. Now, the biggest piece of that puzzle that is unlikely, I think, is that's not that's not that unlikely, except that Notre Dame's a ten point underdog, and it's a little surprising it's that much of an underdog. I mean, they beat Clemson in South Bend without Trevor Lawrence, but they beat them in a legitimate way. That felt like an honest win, but for the fact that Trevor Lawrence now Trevor Lawrence hasn't been kind of what people expected Trevor Lawrence to be this year, and Ian Book's been you know quite quite good for Notre Dame. I was surprised to see the 10-point line. The other line I'm surprised to see, maybe, is that Alabama, if I've got this right, are they only favored by 14 against Florida? Yeah, that's that's what I understand. And, I, well, remember last week we were saying that's what we expected it to be, based on FPI. That's the way it was kind of shaking out. I know, but but it doesn't, Florida, it doesn't Florida laid, a, put a, laid a clunker on us. Yeah. Well, it, wasn't, boy, it was a close game. I mean, it, certainly they – lost when we didn't expect them to that I mean it was a close game at least they weren't blown out so let me give you a, a another question for you guys the you know it's been a hard year to predict what the committee is going to do so whenever you're predicting who's going to be in the playoffs there's two pieces one you're running some kind of simulation on what the teams will look like at the end of the year in terms of who beat who what their one loss records are and then there's a second piece that's just added on top of it. it's just purely political piece of how is the committee going to choose among those teams? And so over time, we've been able to model what the committee does. It's imperfect and it changes year to year and it's still pretty subjective, but we've been able to come up with a model of what the committee is going to do. But then COVID hits and now it's a completely weird landscape. And so you've got a model based on history that is arguably not very relevant. So this is the situation you're in for any of these models. And ESPN has had this model. We've been using it some they use FPI as the inputs, they run the simulation, and then they have some kind of committee model on the other end. But this past weekend, it kicked out a surprising result, and I'm curious to hear what y'all would do about it. It produced this playoff predictor, which says Alabama's going to be in, Ohio State's probably going to be in. Notre Dame, they have it 69%, by the way, which says even if they lose, we think they're going to get in. And then they have USC. And this is a surprising bit. That, so USC is undefeated. They're in the Pac-12 championship this weekend. That was supposed to be against Washington. Washington is COVID paused. And so Oregon is coming in there. USC will be favored in that game. They're giving USC a 50% chance of making the playoff. And Clemson, for example, only 45. Texas A&M, 33. 
where that's coming from is that historically an undefeated team that wins that's power five conference champion is going to make the is going to make the playoff. And so you're kind of stuck with this algorithm and it seems unlikely. I'm just curious what you guys are doing. Is that algorithm like, so, I mean, I understand the undefeated team typically makes it. Does that, I I assume it's undefeated. The model I would build would have undefeated team cross conference, like an undefeated SEC team. Like a lot, I feel like a lot of their undefeated that they're probably training on were these SEC teams where, yeah, you go undefeated through the SEC. Yeah, you're definitely in. No, but, but like undefeated in the Pac-12. But suppose I'm USC, right? And I say, this back to almost back to Adi's earlier point, what makes Ohio State any more worthy to go than us? If USC ends up whatever 6-0, and that's going to be Ohio State's record. Why should Texas A&M go ahead of us? Priors. Why? Priors. <laughs> that's exactly and, what In a season where you have less data you lean on priors more. No, no. I understand what a statistician would do. I'm just saying from the, no, but I feel like the committees committee may be kind of doing of that view, too. From the you know? political committee point of view, I, I hadn't thought about USC, but I'm not sure I have a problem with that logic. I don't see any reason why an undefeated USC shouldn't go as well as Ohio state. Eric, this really comes down to deserving versus best. And you're making kind of a deserving argument, Correct. which is utterly reasonable. It's a, it's a philosophical mm-hmm. argument. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think USC – I'm not sure USC is in the top 15 teams. But the committee yeah. has shown itself historically to a surprising extent to err towards who they consider to be the best. And it's really been, it's really has been kind of eye-opening over the years how much they lean that way. And it goes to Shane's point about Priors. Priors said that Ohio State's going to be better, much better than, Ohio, than, yeah. than USC. If they were going to play – we can look what FBI said would say. I'm yeah, a, like, I'm like, like, like if, if, if you viewed the entire season as like a Bayesian updating algorithm, you go in with the prior that Ohio State is a top four team in the nation. And Ohio State has actually done nothing to dissuade you from that. And so you stick with it. I mean, partly they've done nothing to dissuade you for that because they have not given them, they had as many opportunities to dissuade you from no, that. No, no, Shane, you understand, I have no problem with USC, I, uh, with uh, Ohio State. I just want USC to go over Texas A&M. Just because of the one loss. So the, um, I'm curious what you guys think is right or wrong here. So setting, setting aside what the committee is going to do, um, can I, can did I you go with in- A&M? Can I just jump in? I, I want to elaborate on what the point you made about deserving versus uh, versus um, the best. Yeah. Yeah. How extreme is that in, among the voters? I mean, I can understand it being there a little bit, but if you take away deserving, why do you play the whole season? Just to just to show how good you are. I mean, does winning matter? I mean, as long as you're close, right? I mean, these are great questions. These are I great mean, questions. I, this, I mean, I guess- Adi, this is why I this is why I would prefer you only admit conference champions and then select among them, see them how you want to, but only take right. conference champions to bring some, to bring some on field performance more concretely into the conversation. I mean, I would guess counter argue against Audi just because they play the season to make sure that those teams kind of like, so, you know, if, if, if you're regarded a priori as one of the best teams in the nation and you lose one or less game through the season, you've kind of justified your position among that. And then it's just kind of back to your priors. But if you lose two or more games, you're deemed as falling out of that strata. And so it's really just kind of, it gives those, the season gives those best teams an opportunity to knock themselves out, but it has to be by best team standards, a relatively dramatic seasonal performance, like losing two or more games in order for that to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. 
Um, but I do think that we've got some improvements to do on this thing yet. And I'm hopeful that when we expand the playoffs, inevitably it will be ex- expanded. People think about we're going yeah. to eight in the not too distant future. That's probably going to be, um, that's going to open up a slot for the group of five team. And one way to do it would be to say, we're going to take the five power conference champions. We're going to take the best group of five and then we'll take two wild cards. Yeah. And I love that because it, it makes the regular season much more, including the conference championships, the conference season much more meaningful. And it says, look, I don't care if Northwestern wins the big 10, they're going to the playoff. I don't care if, you know, Washington state wins back 12, they're going to the playoff because they earned it on the field. And then I mean, let the committee seed according to who they think is best. And so it is this blend, but it, to my mind, we've, and I'm an analyst, I'm the guy who runs power rankings. I think we've gone too far towards best and we don't have a more, we need a more explicit way of incorporating deservingness. I totally agree. I'd love to have more teams involved. Well, I mean, I think we would still be fighting or, or arguing about those kind of wild card. I think those wild card type decisions would probably still come down to some argument. It would just, it would be kind of further down the ladder where it's That's like right. this one to this one lost team versus these two lost teams, who's actually better, best, et cetera. We're not going to avoid arguments, but I agree. Like I think expanding out gives just more degrees of freedom, basically to kind of make good decisions. Right. It reduces the role of that thing. Yeah. And, it, and it, and it would, and it would, it would, it would kind of force a few people in that deserved before sin. By the way, where FBI, I mean, we're talking about, I was going to ask you guys how you feel about Alabama's separation from the rest of the field. We talked a lot about Kansas City's separation. We're seeing, a, I mean, we've seen this before with these top teams in college, but we're really seeing it again this year. FBI, who again, we think is one of the best, probably the best publicly available power ranking outside of Massey Peabody. We're not running college this year. FBI has Alabama at plus 36.5. And Ohio State's in the number two spot, 7.2 points below that. So the top two teams in the country, according to FBI, would they'd still have the tie to seven-point favorite over Ohio State on a neutral field. It's a pretty big separation. And Alabama, I just feel like they've been getting better and better as they go through the year. And they had an off year last year, and they seem to be kind of back in full force this year. I hope it's not just this kind of uh, inevitable walk to another tied championship. Well, let me ask you, like, like, like I guess it's a weird hypothetical, but if if Trevor Lawrence had played the entire season and Clemson was also undefeated right now, would they kind of be closer than Ohio State is currently? Because I feel like oh, Alabama would have been in like the last few years just as separated from the rest of the field if that field hadn't included Clemson under Trevor Lawrence. That's that's fair. That's what what is it's true. When Alabama's a little high relative to historical. Like I feel like last season, even we were talking about like, oh, isn't Clemson and Alabama kind of unduly separated from the rest of the field? I think we just kind of punted that that separation was still there. It was just down one slot. I, you know, we should look at this again historically. My yeah. impression is that thirty six is pretty high. That, that right. we have lots of seasons where the top team does not reach thirty six. Um, so much so that I think these second these number two, number three teams at 29 and 27, that's not especially low. I think a lot of that gap is coming from Alabama kind of stretching it out there. Um, I mean, Clemson's right there at 27-7. Yeah, I think that's a little bit under what you would have expected from Clemson if Trevor Lawrence was being the Trevor Lawrence we, we thought he was going to be. Um, but, you know, the, the, we talked about the 14-point line. Mm-hmm. Last week it looked like a 14-point line with Florida. FBI has them by 17 right now. And by the way, we were talking about that Ohio State USC comparison. What do you think that line would be according to FPI? This is a pretty good approximation for betting lines. They say points. 
Yeah, but it's so it's Ohio State plus twenty nine and USC plus fifteen. Okay, and so it's about a fourteen. Yeah, about a, again about a fourteen point spread. All right, guys. Well, it'll be a fun weekend shaking out the the end of the college football regular season with the conference championships. We'll get the playoff team slotted. More to talk about down the road. That has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. We still have a fourth quarter to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, our interview segment. We are delighted to have Jay Billis join us. You guys know Jay, of course. He's a longtime basketball announcer. He is with ESPN. That followed an illustrious career at Duke, as well as a coaching stint at Duke, as well as a law school stint at Duke. Jay's been one of the main faces of college basketball for pushing 20 years now, and we're delighted to have him on the show. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. I'm joined by Eric Bradlow, two of the Jay, I mean, Eric and I, two of the four Wharton Moneyball hosts. We um, would love to hear your thoughts on any number of things to do with college basketball, but I think the most obvious one first is COVID. You know, NCAA men's basketball had nine months to watch other sports try to get it right. How do you feel about how they've done? We've seen cancellations all over the place, of course. How do you feel about what's COVID? what COVID's doing to NCAA basketball and how, and how NCAA is handling it. Well, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, we've had a ton of cancellations and postponements. Uh, part of that, I think you expect. Uh, we've had a number of, of programs that have had, uh, they call it a pause, which basically shut down for two weeks. And mm-hmm. some program, programs have shut down multiple times. Uh, so it's been difficult. Uh, part of it was foreseeable, certainly, uh, because of the time of year that, uh, that basketball has played. Uh, you know, it was a timing problem last year where, you know, everything right. shut down in March during the, uh, the tournament season. So that was, that was disconcerting and difficult, but it was difficult for everybody. And then, you know, football had the luxury of being able to play in the, uh, the late summer, early fall before the, the surge started. Yep. So it's kind of hitting college basketball again. I think the the one issue that I've seen, and and I think it's been a major failing of of athletics in general, uh, whether it's football or basketball, the the revenue sports and and the multi billion dollar businesses, is we haven't really had a national conversation about uh, what we're willing to do here. Like, wh- mm-hmm. what kind of resources are will- we willing to throw at this? What are the metrics? You know, how much risk are we willing to, to accept? And you know, is it acceptable that we've got these athletes playing in isolation bubbles? Um, you know, you'll hear people now they're saying now that now the party line is, well, the players are safer in the bubbles than they are if we let them go home for the holiday. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, but isn't it convenient? We're only keeping the revenue producing athletes in a bubble and we're sending mm-hmm. all our other athletes home. I mean, mm-hmm. do we only care about certain athletes? Mm-hmm. I mean, the narrative, the narrative's not very good. And, uh, and we haven't, we haven't really had a conversation about, about, you know, what we're willing to do here and, and how far we're willing to push this. Well, one of the challenges of course, is that there's no centralized body with, with college sports. I mean, we've seen football, it's just been a complete patchwork. And so a conversation, a conversation is one thing, but then there's no one to actually govern this thing. It's just left to what schools are going to decide and what conferences are going to decide. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to interrupt. That's kind of a cop out, honestly. We, you know, people say that all the time, but it's funny. They can tell the schools when they can recruit 
they can tell them uh, when they can practice and they can tell them under what circumstances they can practice. You know, the NCAA uh, uh, tells them when the season starts and, and all these other things. They, they can tell them whatever they want. They, they don't want to. Well, and, this is that's 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 you know, it's plain in football. And for years, you know, I think most people would speculate that money's had an even bigger influence on basketball. You've been on the front lines with this thing. I mean, where are we with NCAA and the role of money? And, and how do you, how do you as, as a chief kind of observer analyst, um, you're invested in this. How do you feel about where we are in the role of money and the decisions that are made about these college athletes? Well, I'm fine with it. I mean, it's not like, you know, somebody knocked on the NCAA, like Ed McMahon back in the old days, knocked on the NCAA's door and handed them billions of dollars and said, here you go. And they're having a hard time figuring it out. Yeah, you know, all these decisions to turn this into a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry uh, were made intentionally and purposefully. So we, we've done this. We built it into this over the course of the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. And we've done it in football and basketball, and we'll do it in every other sport if we can. Right now, football and basketball are the ones that sell. So, you know, they negotiate these multi-billion dollar television deals and apparel deals and you name it. So clearly money isn't a problem and, and playing for money isn't a problem. It's just what, if the athlete gets any money, then we've got an issue. Mm-hmm. So we've constructed this sort of phony system where, where we're constantly being dishonest about it. I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it somehow we've built it by by calling it the collegiate model. The, the collegiate model is no different than the NBA model or the NFL model, uh, though. They negotiate their their uh, media rights deals the same way. They negotiate their apparel deals the same way. It's not a, it's not that big of a deal. It's really pretty simple. But the, the difference is that the colleges don't allow the athletes to accept more than a, a scholarship and a stipend. And that's it. And mm-hmm. I, I happen to think that's profoundly wrong when literally everyone else is, is allowed their fair market value, including every other student. And people act like um, uh, other students don't get scholarships. They do. And nobody's claiming that somehow they're paid. Um, but with an athlete, they say, well, the athletes are paid already. They get a scholarship. And if you don't like it, don't play. I think that like to whom else do we say that? You know, mm-hmm. there, there are other people who get full rides and stipends. You know, they might be a journalism major or a, a music major or a, a you know biology major, whatever. They're not telling them that they can't write a book or they can't uh, a musician can't play in a club or cut a record or an act, an acting student can't act in movies or television and make as much money as the market will allow. But somehow we feel comfortable telling athletes, you get only this. And if you have a nickel more, we're going to paint you as a criminal. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's just profoundly wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, J- Jay, first of all, I'm in agreement with you, but I'm also in agreement with you as a parent of a D1 athlete. In my case, uh, my son plays squash. Um, the minute they let the, I mean, it's a pen, but the minute they let the basketball and football teams on the court, I want him to let him back on the squash board. But I want to change the uh, topic for a second to COVID, but on the field. So I've always had this theory, and as a statistician, but also someone who was a mediocre recreational player, I always felt like if I didn't practice or train, like, you know, I could just get on the court and I'd be the same mediocre recreational player I've always been. Who does the COVID, the lack of practice, the lack of off season, does it affect the Jay Billis type player of the world more? Does it affect the lower end tier player at the end of the bench? I've always wondered 
who benefits the most from the coaching, the practice, or can some people just get out of bed and they're going to be great? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would really contemplated that. I think, I think the lack of, of practice and exhibition games and, and preparation that you would normally have uh, probably affects the, the least experienced players more uh, because they probably need a little bit more to prepare themselves. The, the more experienced players uh, are, are probably a little bit better off in getting themselves prepared for a season. Uh, what you're finding, at least what I'm finding and hearing is that coaches are having to learn about their teams on the fly a little bit more because they didn't have as much time uh, during mm-hmm. the summer uh, in the, in the preseason, and then they didn't have exhibition games. So they might've thought one thing about what their team could be, but then when they saw it on the floor against, uh, uh other competition, they're like, you know what, we're not what I thought we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've seen adjustments that way, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to, I tend to be in the camp of sort of everybody's in the same boat on this. Uh, so it, it may it may be more pronounced with a less experienced player, maybe a, a quote-unquote lesser athlete, if you will. But overall, I think the circumstances are pretty much the same for everyone. Uh, I just feel like the older players are going to have a, a better opportunity, just like in anything else, people with experience are going to have a better opportunity to uh, be better prepared for adapting to what they're facing in a changing changing environment. Maybe just, Jay, a follow-up to that. Do you think there'll be, just directly related, do you think there'll be more uncertainty in the NBA draft? Like, for example, um, if you were a general manager in this year's draft, you know, the one-and-done people tend to do better in the draft, but that's a self-selection issue. The people that can come out and do well choose to come out. But do you think there'll be more uncertainty in the draft this year that when we look back on this draft, we're like, wow, that person was really drafted number four? Well, there was uncertainty in it last year, uh, and, and I don't know which way that cuts, honestly. I, I, I felt like there might be a, an opportunity last year where you didn't have as much data over the summer, you, sort of the data you would normally get where you were mm-hmm. in a combine, you got to watch them uh, work out, uh, you could bring players into your facility and get a look at them, uh, things like that. So maybe because you didn't have those data points you'd relied upon in the past, that you just go on their film, their five on five film. And I thought, honestly, that might lead to better decisions because you're not, you're, you're not going with uh, sort of the shiny object of having seen a player in a workout, uh, uh, you know, late or seen him in a combine situation. And so you're swayed by, by one data point when there's an entire body of work that you might be overshadowing. I mean, you know, you, you, goes back to the name of your show. I mean, when I first read the book Moneyball and the concept of, you know, you had all this data on a player, but if you saw that player hit a 500 foot home run, you know, <laughs> you're, you're influenced by, by that uh, rather than the entire body of work, which told you he doesn't hit a 500 foot home run very often. So you better enjoy it when you see it. You know, it's those kind of things that I felt like, well, maybe and we won't know the answer for a while, obviously, but uh, I thought it could cut in, into a positive way for the teams rather than a negative way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jay, you mentioned analytics and, and in their role in evaluating players. What difference do you think analytics has made in the college game over the time that it's really emerged? That, that book was written in you know, 2002, 2003. We've seen a profound change in the NBA game. How would you say it has impacted the college game? I think it's, it's been profound in the college game as well. Uh, it, it, Obviously, college doesn't have the same sort of 
analytics departments that are are throwing millions of dollars, you know, at, at, at that where you have in baseball and, and basketball and football, the, these, you know, gigantic teams of analytics experts that are going mm-hmm. over data. Uh, but but you certainly have it at a at a greater level than ever before. And I think more more coaches than ever are open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I from my seat, it's been very helpful for my job. Um, and it's helped me in my, you know, sort of my evaluation of players and of teams mm-hmm. in their efficiency. Um, I don't I don't go by analytics alone and I don't go by what I see alone. What, what I mm-hmm. what basically ha- happens with me is analytics helps me identify certain issues and it, it, it serves to uh, either confirm or you know, discount what I may think I see. Yep. And uh, so so for that, I, I think just like anything else, you know, it's almost like a balanced diet. If you have a balanced diet of of what you see every day, what you gather uh, sort of in your in the normal process and then uh, the numbers, uh, because the, the numbers don't lie, but at the same time, they can be manipulated to it's how you interpret those numbers. And, and I think you have to be careful in the interpretation. Well, you say it's like a balanced diet, but if so, there aren't many people running around with a balanced diet. They tend to run in one of two varieties, you know, all data or all eyeballs, one of the two. So it's delightful to hear you talk about the, the balance. Can you give us an example, a concrete example of the way you're using analytics? And is it more about the prep or is it more about the post-game evaluation? Where is it playing a role? Uh, all throughout. So I, I use analytics to, when I watch a team on film, if I've got a game coming up or I'm trying to study up on a team, I'll watch the film and get an idea of, you know, what do I think of this team? What, what, what impressed me? Uh, you know, how do they play? How do they score? What, you know, where, where are the, where are the uh, strengths and weaknesses of the team? Mm-hmm. And then I'll go and, and look at the analytics and, and, conf- you know, try to confirm it. You know, is this player as good of a shooter off the move as I think, or is this player as good of a defender? You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you may be impressed with a, a player had a certain, certain game uh, that you watched where the, the player grabbed double figure rebounds and then you, you know, 17 rebounds in a game. And then you go look and again to see that the guy didn't have 17 rebounds combined in the five games before that. Uh-huh. So that was sort of an anomaly against a, a lesser team, uh, things like that, that help you. And then throughout the course of the year, uh, when you're determining, it, it's really helped in determining, you know, the, the overall strength of a team, in in when you look at at the overall numbers compared against the the best competition how did they do against the best competition mm-hmm. and then i i i always look historically when you're trying how do, how does this team stack up against some of the best teams of the past when you're talking about mm-hmm. um you know their ability to really uh win when it counts at the end of the season um yeah. so you look at those and look at trends and just be careful. I, I'm always careful that that I'm not swayed by a couple of data points. You know, one or two data points don't make a trend, and I'm, I'm right. looking more for trends. Right. So, Jay, one of the things we always talk about here on our on Morton Moneyball is three is worth more than two. As a matter of fact, it's worth fifty percent more than two. So, how much are you of a believer? As you know, let's call it the Daryl Morey, Mike D'Antoni system. You should be taking dunks and threes, and that the two pointer should be verboten. I'm I'm right with them in that theory. Now, the the idea of the mid range jump shot, you know, being forbidden, 
um, or, or, or lessened, I, I'm not a believer in that. Mm-hmm. I think, I think there are times when a, a mid range jump shot is the best shot you can get, but I, I don't buy sort of my, uh, you know, people my age that like to say, well, the mid range shot is dead. It's a lost art. It's not a lost art. Uh, it's a de-emphasized art because it doesn't count as much. And y- y- you've always, you know, from the first time I read Dean Smith's book, Multiple Offense and Defense, that was the first I had ever heard of points per possession. Mm-hmm. And that was written in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I still think it's the best book I've ever read on basketball. But wow. Coach Smith posited that the, the most efficient place to score on a basketball floor was, uh, was the free throw line. And that if you, the, the perfect, perfect game was to get fouled on every possession. Because if you're fouled on every possession, you're going to shoot a ton of free throws. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, I, I think the opportunities that you have to put your opponent in a position to foul um, are, are really important. And it's not just sort of the idea of, of layup, corner three, things like that. It's, it's do you attack to, um, to put your opponent in a position to foul so that you can get to the free throw line, not just on shot attempts, but on common fouls. That's mm-hmm. when you really, I think, have an opportunity to be a, a great team is when uh, when you spend far more time at the free throw line than your opponents. Mm-hmm. Jay, listening to you talk about that and about the balance between numbers and eyeballs um, makes me aware how differently you see the game than the average fan. Uh, we, we, we love to ask people like you if you had a word of advice to the average fan on how to watch the game uh, more wisely, I suppose. Uh, what would you recommend? And just to make it concrete, say you're going to sit down with me and Eric and you're going to, you're going to grant us a, two hours of your time. We're going to watch a game together. What, what do you think you're going to end up pointing out to us and what will you emphasize to improve our appreciation of college basketball? I, I'd probably start by, by whenever I watch a game uh, and especially if I'm watching a new team play where I don't have historical knowledge of the team or the coach or how they do things, I'm looking for, uh, what are they trying to do? You know, sort of what, what kind of offense are they running? Uh, how, first of all, how, how quickly do they advance the ball and how do they advance it? Do they dribble advance it? Uh, how quickly do they get it up the floor? Uh, is, it, is it a sideline advance? What, what are they doing with their initial, initial push, initial break? And then I look at their secondary offense because um, every, every initial break, goes into essentially a secondary break or flows into an offense. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at, at how the, one, how they reverse the ball from side to side. So, and then I look at, well, how would an opponent try to take that away? So the things that they do well and the ways they they're trying to score and the players that they're trying to get the most shots, um, what are opponents going to do to take that away? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think with, a, you know, like taking the University of North Carolina, I mentioned Dean Smith before taking them as an example, like you can watch them play a, a few times. It doesn't even take a few and figure out exactly what they're trying to do. The mm-hmm. difficulty in playing North Carolina isn't figuring out what they do. It's stopping it because mm-hmm. they're so relentless in the way they 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 perform uh, in the way they run their, you know, run their stuff. Um, and then you look at how they, how they gain extra possessions. Cause that's the difference between winning and losing. You know, how do you, how do you gain extra, do they turn you over? Do they pressure the ball? Are they out in passing lanes? Is mm-hmm. it more of a, a passive defense? That's more pack line or, um, you know, how, it, what, what does their help do? Um, 
things like that. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of teams, how many do they send to the glass? Uh, you know, a good, a good defense is going to send all five guys, all five defenders to the, to the glass to secure the ball so they can go the other way. But how many offensive rebounders do they send? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Virginia might send two, maybe one, and that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they, they want to take away your transition, so they're going to get back. They, they, they feel like they, they would rather give up fewer transition baskets than get offensive rebound baskets, whereas Michigan State, Tom Izzo might send four, four offensive players to the offensive glass and then mm-hmm. race you back because he wants to get second-chance opportunities. So, you know, you look at things like that, but, you know, one thing I would tell, I would tell anybody, if they're trying to learn, you know, learn about the nuts and bolts of the game, because I watch a lot of football. I don't know anything about football. I'm a casual football fan. Uh, I am not watching a football game trying to figure out, are they trap blocking or what are they, you know, what are they doing on the offensive line? Yeah. Um, I, I'd, I'd go crazy if I tried to do that. Uh, I just try to enjoy the game. So I, I would, mm-hmm. what I would tell the casual fan is, is just try to appreciate the game and what you enjoy out of it. Cause it's not, you're not supposed to be breaking rocks and you know, when you're watching it, uh, you know, I just have enjoy yourself. And if, if you want to learn more about it, there are a million things you can learn when you hear a term. Uh, uh, if you don't understand it, go on YouTube and you can find a breakdown of just about anything you hear right. in a game and they'll explain it pretty well. Right. Speaking of enjoying the game, is there a team that you would point us at for this season to pay a team or teams to pay attention to that you think is especially interesting or enjoyable to watch? Yeah, I think the, the best offensive team I've seen is Gonzaga. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark Few, and I, I've, I've known, known Mark Few for 20-plus years, I'd say. And one of the most interesting things about him is his teams play free, and they, play, uh, they score a ton of points. And you know, they, they don't hold the ball. They're trying to score and score in a hurry, mm-hmm. and they're very skilled. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I used to talk to Mark about, geez, all these coaches that hold the ball and squeeze the life out of it and take every, you know, get, get it down to the end of the possession. And he would uh-huh. always laugh and say, I, I don't want to, I don't want to coach that way. Cause I don't even want to watch that, you know, cause <laughs> the truth is he has to watch every game that he coaches right. in and he wants to watch something fun. And, right. uh, so I would say offensively, uh, Gonzaga and, okay. and I think the best defensive team in the country is Baylor. Uh, oh, really? they're, oh, they're, fan, they're fantastic the way they guard. Uh-huh. And, and I haven't seen anybody guard better than them in a, in a few years now. That's remarkable. And of course, you know, back to COVID, we had a Gonzaga Baylor matchup a week or two ago that got canceled because of right. uh, COVID. These are number one and number two teams in the country. Jay, sp- speaking of those two teams, looking just kind of casually running down the top 20 these days, it, it, it doesn't feel like an orthodox top 20. And on the one hand, that's kind of exciting. On the other, I'm curious whether it really means anything. Do you, has, the, has the geographic center moved at all? Or is this just a one-year kind of normal variation? Because I would expect Duke and UNC to be up there. Instead, you're seeing Iowa and, of course, Gonzaga. And now you've mentioned Baylor. I mean, where is the geographic center these days? Well, it's, it's really the same place. I mean, it's coming from the same conferences. I think, uh, you know, you're always going to more often than not uh, see, you know, Duke and Kentucky and, and uh, program, Kansas programs right. like that that are going to grab the top spots. So the same thing in football with Alabama, Clemson and all that. But certain years you have a team that gets older together and, 
you know, I was doing some work on Wisconsin uh, today because I have a game with Wisconsin and Louisville on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I was laughing like Wisconsin, they're starting five. They got four guys that are 22 and one guy that's 24. Amazing. So, you know, of course they're going to be good. They've got, they've got older players that have yeah. a ton of experience. They're talented guys. Um, so, you know, you have certain teams that build up to being really good in a given year. Um, and I was one of those, they've been good for a while now, but, but this is, I think this is Fran McCaffrey's best team because he's got, mm-hmm. he's got seniors mm-hmm. and guys that have played together for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, I think we're seeing a lot of the same teams up there year after year. Um, uh, you know, the power five teams are always going to, going to be in better shape to be good because they've got more resources mm-hmm. and with their TV deals and everything, they attract better players. Uh, but they're still going to be, you know, San Diego State's really good again. Uh, they're going to be some teams that that come out and surprise you. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise to San Diego State anymore, but uh, teams will still surprise you with a with an upset in the tournament, things like that. Right. And, and back to Eric's idea that different teams deal with this differently. It, it should be that the tournament's even more interesting this year, given the volatility and unpredictability of everything. Jay, before we let you go, can we hit one more topic? We, we are always interested in um, player health across all sports. And we've seen analytics play an increasing role in injury prevention and health and, um, and, and you know, performance evaluation. So are you seeing much in basketball? Do you think technology and data and wearables, are, are they making a difference yet in, in player safety and health? A huge difference. Yes. Um, you're seeing where, where players sleep is being monitored, um, mm. their heart rate during practices. So they know, uh, they know exactly how much exertion they're under, not only to capacity, but it allows them to help them, uh, better in recovery. Mm-hmm. So for, for example, Villanova, you know, after they have a, a game, or, or maybe a, a two-a-day or some really hard practice, practice session, they have what they call a flush day where they won't do very much at all so they can recover from, uh, from the game and they'll be in a better position to have uh, uh, the players at, at top capacity the following day after a, after a game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're seeing a lot of it, – it's really reduced the amount of court time at full exertion that you've seen. I mean, it used to be you lose a game, you know, you might lose a game, the coach is upset, then they have a really long practice the next day and it's detrimental, Um, makes the coach feel better, but it's (laughs) detrimental to the team because you don't have that recovery. So uh, we, we, we've seen a lot of that. Uh, Even now with COVID um, there are certain teams now that have, that are where have wearables that determine whether the players are staying uh, how far apart they are. So if you do have a player test positive, then they can show through analytics that uh, that certain segment of the team hasn't been within six feet of this person for this amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's helping them make their decisions with regard to contact tracing. Uh, not everybody's doing that, but you have a few that are out there that have the resources and that the, the technology to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so analytics are playing a huge role uh, in uh, uh, in player safety um and and player well-being and you know it depends i i think i think those things are all good 
um, you know, sort of depends how you look at it. Like these things are done to enhance performance. It's kind of like their, their facilities, you know, we're spending a tremendous amount of money in facilities Mm -hmm. and the schools are trying to justify it by saying, well, look, this is for the players. This is for the benefit of the players. And you're going, okay, (laughs) but really it's for the benefit of you to get more out of the players. I mean, the, the players, I guess, tangentially benefit, like they benefit from getting more rest and all that. But uh, but they're resting them more and feeding them better, not because they're trying to be these benevolent givers of great gifts. They're doing it so that they can maximize the productivity of the players. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jay, you, you name that. And then what do you do with it? So there is this fundamental tension between the motives that both parties have and and you're naming it quite explicitly, which is helpful. But then what do we do with that? What do you do with the data? No, that, that observation, the fact that, yeah, you know, it's good for the kids, but it's also good for the school, good for the revenue. Well, I mean, but we're not having these discussions with regard to anything else. And, and that's where the rub is, that, that all of these things are said to justify the amateurism um, decision that they've made, that the players have to be amateur. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, don't, they don't talk about, well, here's what we're doing for our paid employees. You know, sort of, they, they do a lot of things for paid employees. So when they tell you that, that look at these wonderful facilities that we have for the players and, and look at the travel and look at the accommodations and look at the food. You're, you're saying, well, the paid staff are working in those facilities and they're flying on the same planes and they're eating the same food. Um, you know, you're not, they're not taking a discount in their salary for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's just a, sort of these justifications that they have. It's kind of like we were talking before about the COVID thing. Um, when, when, we're saying that now we're saying that, well, we're putting the players in bubbles for their own good. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, they're, they're, they're less likely to, to get, you know, be exposed to the virus in these bubbles. And you know, kind of, isn't that convenient that the revenue drivers are, <laughs> are safer driving the revenue. And, yeah. but, but yet we've got all these other athletes that, that we're, what are we saying about them? The lacrosse players and, you know, field hockey, you know, are we saying we don't care about their safety because we're not putting them in bubbles and we're sending mm-hmm. them home for the holidays and, and all that. I mean, that's the implication, isn't it? If we're saying that the bubbles are, are protecting, we are doing this for their safety. Well, then we must not care about the safety of all the other athletes mm-hmm. that don't happen to be revenue producing. Mm-hmm. It, it's, mm-hmm. there are aspects of this that are total BS too. Then that's where you use the data to say, Look at look at this wonderful gift we're giving these athletes. And like, no, you're not. And and they're doing it in the NBA, too. And they're and they're paying the players. Um, Those things aren't mutually exclusive. You're doing it because it's in the best interest of of your team and and your enterprise. And, uh, you know, the players that are in in better physical condition and and uh, and get better rest and are better fueled of course they're going to outperform those that are not all things being equal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why it's being done. They're not, they're not feeding the players better because it's a nice thing to do. They're feeding them better because they perform better when they're fed. <laughs> so one of the things we're hearing you say is let's just be more honest about this. Let's be more explicit about it. Let's have a conversation about these things instead of sweeping it under the rug or, or putting it under some shiny umbrella. That's not quite real. Yes. That, I, basically, I mean, let, let's admit that this is professional sports uh, yeah. and 
And look, I mean, I don't I don't take any pleasure in the midst of a pandemic to point out that these players are, are now pros. They they were pros before. I, I've, I've said this for 20 years now. They, they've been pros all this time. Mm-hmm. But after after we have said that we will never do this, we will never play in bubbles. We will never do this. It's undeniable that they're pros. Mm-hmm. And and I think they are. We have now put them on a status during this pandemic that they're we have we have deemed them essential workers in, in this business. Right. right. Like who whom else are, are we are we asking to do this? I mean, right. we're testing basketball and football players every day at the power five level. Mm-hmm. And then on the same campus, healthcare workers that are on the front lines fighting COVID are not getting tested at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I pointed at this out on the Duke, Illinois game, and you wouldn't have believed, like I had said that, that, that they're tested more often than their health and healthcare workers on their same campus. And I had a bunch of healthcare workers reach out to me saying, saying, you know, you're right, but you need to understand something. We're not tested at all. Like, like <laughs> they're not just tested more. We're tested only when we're ill. Jeez. Like they're, they're tested to make sure they don't have it. We're, we're not tested at all. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy cow. I mean, it, that that certainly touched a nerve among among the real essential workers. Right. And then the ones that that clearly we have deemed essential for pushing forward the multi-billion dollar business of college sports. Um, I, I think it's undeniable that we we basically sent the message that they're essential. Mm-hmm. Super interesting, uh, helpful perspective, Jay. Really appreciate it and appreciate your joining us today. Wish you the best with the work that you do. Always a pleasure to watch you and to read you. My pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Jay Billis, ESPN basketball announcer, big uh, basketball observer for the last 20 years. Lots of things to say about the state of men's basketball and uh, amateur athletics in general. That gentlemen and ladies and listeners has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We do this, of course, Every week for the whole team, for Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, this is Cade Massey. For the boss man, Maddie Dats, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs> <laughs>